We're continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, returning for a third and final look at chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. In case you're with us for the first time this morning, let me give you a context for understanding where these verses fall in the developing argument of this letter. In this letter of missionary introduction, as we are calling it, the Apostle Paul is trying to solicit the support of the Roman church for his ongoing missionary endeavors. He's seen a number of good things happen in the East, with a a number of churches having been planted, and at the time of this letter's writing, was hoping to very soon turn his attention to the far western reaches of the then-known world, setting his sights on Spain. As part of that process, I concur with a perspective that says that Paul, for logistical and practical reasons, wanted to relocate his base of operations from Antioch to Rome. And in order to do that, he would need the support of the Roman Church. And if he was going to acquire the support of the Roman Church, he needed to introduce himself to the majority of people there who did not know him because he did not start that church. And the purpose of such an introduction, then, would be to give them some assurances that he was a good guy, that he was the right man for the job, and and did indeed bear the marks of an apostle, and thus ought to be supported and honored and respected amongst them. And so, with that goal in mind, Paul, among other things, is eager to share with the Romans a kind of summary statement of his theological position on the fundamentals of the faith. If he wants them to have confidence in him as a preacher and teacher of the gospel, then he needs to take some time to explain to them just what his gospel consists of. That is, what it is that he has been telling people and will continue to tell people about themselves and God and Jesus and the cross and how all of that fits together. That's a big part of what Paul is doing in this letter. So, at the beginning of the letter, after some introductory remarks, Paul starts out with, as we've seen before, a brief but dense theological thesis statement where he talks about the gospel being the power of God for the salvation of everyone who will believe, and then with that goes on to say why and how the gospel functions like that. And the answer is because In it, or perhaps by it, God bestows an undeserved righteousness upon his sinful people, thereby making them right with himself. At any rate, after that uh, opening thesis statement, after giving his readers a, a foretaste of the good news that he will expand upon later, Paul launches into an extended section where he dishes out a lot of bad news, endeavoring to show why all people are in need of this sort of righteousness that God freely provides. Then, after making that clear, Paul returns to talking about the righteousness of God from chapter 3, verse 19 and following, which is where we currently find ourselves. Now, in our first look at chapter 3, verses 19 to 26, we return to thinking about what precisely Paul means by the phrase, righteousness of God, focusing initially and in particular on how this concept relates to the law of God. And in looking at that, we saw both what the law is not for and what it does not do, and we saw at least in part what the law is for and what it does do, at least according to these verses. 
In short, we saw that the law was never intended to be used as a means of earning a right standing with God. However, it was intended to give us a knowledge of sin, both objectively and subjectively, as well as being given in order to implicate the world and render the whole world accountable to God. In our second look at chapter 3, verses 19 to 26, just last week, we continued to look at this concept of the righteousness of God, concentrating on five basic questions. First of all, what is it? Secondly, why do we need it? Thirdly, how is it even possible that we might obtain it? Fourthly, what is it based upon? And fifthly, how do we come to possess it? In the course of our study last week, we made our way through three and a half of those questions. With regard to the first one, that is, what is the righteousness of God, we saw that it is a right standing with God that comes about not as a consequence of something that we do, but as a consequence of our trusting in something that Jesus did. With regard to the second question, why do we need a righteousness from God? The reason we need a righteousness from God and of God is because in ourselves we are broken and sinful. We fall far short of the glory of God which we were meant to image, but we don't. And thus we're bound up in and condemned by our unrighteousness in the sight of God. And not only do we stand condemned, but we are incapable of fixing it. We're incapable of writing our relationship with God by or through our own efforts. With regard to the third question, how is it even possible that we might obtain it, this righteousness of God? And the bottom line reason is this. It's only and simply because God has determined in His heart to be kind and gracious to His people. It's because God has determined for His own reasons and not out of any sort of obligation or compulsion to freely bestow upon undeserving people the gift of righteousness. With regard to the fourth question, what is the righteousness of God based upon? The short answer is the cross of Christ. And we then began unpacking what that meant or involved as the passage itself talks about what happened at the cross in at least four different ways, namely justification, redemption, propitiation, and vindication. We were able to look at two of those four images during our time together last week. Firstly, we looked at justification, a kind of legal concept, and the Bible word used to describe God's determination to pardon or forgive the sinful person and to accept them as righteous, that is, as standing in a right relation to himself on account of their having been credited with the righteousness of another. We then finished by looking at redemption, a kind of marketplace concept, if you will, that the Bible employs to talk about our being enslaved to sin, and uses it to talk about how the penalty or wage for our sin is death, and then finally to show how Christ paid our bill in our place, and by that price uh, ransomed us and redeemed us and delivered us from slavery to sin and into the freedom we have in Christ. Well, that's as far as we got last week. This morning I want us to pick up where we left off and look at two other things that were going on at the cross and which are found in these same verses. Propitiation and vindication. Before we dive into that, let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we would ask again for your help and guidance as we look once more at this portion of your word. Help us to understand well these matters that are so significant and indeed are at the very core of what we believe about you and what you've done and are doing and will do in this world. Help us to see the importance of having a substantive understanding of what happened at the cross of Christ for our own building up and encouragement and so that we are much better equipped to talk about the cross of Christ with others and to help them see, as we have come to see, their need of the mercy of God so completely available there. And so, again, please inhabit this moment. Work in us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the Romans passage for us once more. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Having looked at the first two images, justification and redemption, as components of what was happening at the cross of Christ, we now turn our attention to the third image found in these verses, the one that is captured by the term propitiation, which appears in verse 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, what does propitiation mean? It means, essentially, to placate the wrath of a person, to assuage them, to recognize and respond appropriately to a justifiable anger. Now, in recent history, a number of theologians and Bible scholars have struggled with this word propitiation because they are uncomfortable with the notion of God being angry or wrathful as if these sorts of emotions are not worthy of a divine being and are more like what you might expect to find in the so-called gods within various pagan cosmologies or mythologies. And to be sure, if you've spent any time reading mythology, you will recognize what the, those sort of comments are referring to, as you will no doubt have come across stories where you know, such and such God in a fit of childish rage hauls off and does something terrible and has to have his or her wrath appeased in some way before he or she will relent. At any rate, some scholars with those kinds of ideas in the back of their minds have been uncomfortable with the notion of what they see as an angry, capricious God who seems 
again, to be more like something that's a product of Greek mythology than the God who is. And so, under the the pressure of that sort of thing, one thing that's happened is that there have been some attempts to translate the Greek language here by means of another word, such as expiation, which appears in the RSV translation, for example, and which is not so much about addressing the wrath of a person as it is about addressing the guilt or defilement that comes as a consequence of a person's sins. But as Stott points out, this concern expressed by some scholars is overwrought and ill-founded. He argues, rightly I believe, that we need to maintain and even defend the notion of propitiation. For one thing, there's simply no question that Romans 1-3 to talks very clearly about the wrath of God being poured out due to the unrighteousness of men and women. In other words, God is passionately opposed to and offended by the evil dispositions and actions of the human race. You simply cannot get around that. It's, it's all over the text. The other reason Stott says we should hang on to this idea of propitiation is because upon examination, what is going on in pagan mythology and what happened at the cross of Christ are two very different things. He asks, why is a propitiation necessary? And the pagan answer is, because the gods are bad-tempered and subject to moods and fits and are capricious. The Christian answer is, because God is holy and his holy wrath rests on evil. There's nothing unprincipled or unpredictable or uncontrolled about God's anger. He has a legitimate reason to be angry. Well, Stott goes on to ask, who undertakes to do the propitiating? And the pagan answer is that we do. We have offended the gods, so we must appease them. And the Christian answer is, by contrast, is that we cannot personally placate the righteous anger of God. We have no means whatever by which to do so. But God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Stott asked the question, well, how has the propitiation been accomplished? The pagan answer is that we have to bribe the gods with sweets or vegetable offerings or animals or even human sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrificial system, while on the surface seems the same, is actually very different since it was recognized, firstly, that God himself has given the sacrifices to his people in order that they might make atonement. But even this, even those Old Testament sacrifices were only a temporary thing, a kind of placeholder until in the course of history, the Son came along, and he was the one to whom all the previous sacrifices pointed, and the one who came to die in our place. In summary, says Stott, it would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. But according to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear Son, who took our place, who bore our sin, died our death. And so God himself gave himself to save us from himself. And so at the cross of Christ, it is perfectly right and even necessary to say that God's perfectly justifiable anger against humanity because of its sin was fully satisfied by God himself 
in the person of his son because there would have been no other way for it to be fully addressed. Only because of his mercy, his decision to be kind and generous was this even possible. So, justification, redemption, propitiation, and the fourth thing that was taking place at the cross of Christ, the fourth image here, is vindication. And we see this idea of vindication right there in verses 25 to 26. Listen again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, one of the things that was going on in the cross of Christ was that God's reputation, if I can put it that way, was vindicated. God's character, the fact that He is a just God and a holy God who always and by definition does right and is right, that character was demonstrated at the cross. Now, a natural question that might pop up at this point would be, was God's character somehow in question? I mean, is there a problem here? And the answer to that is illustrated by something found in James Boyce's book, The Foundations of the Faith. He writes, Quite a few years ago, a Society for the Spread of Atheism prepared a tract containing half a dozen sketches of Old Testament characters combined with a lurid description of their misdeeds. No efforts were spared in describing their sin. Uh, one figure was Abraham. The leaflet pointed out that he was willing to sacrifice his wife's honor to save his own life, yet he was called the friend of God. The atheists asked, What kind of God this is who would have a friend like Abraham? Another figure was Jacob. He was described as a cheat and a liar, yet God himself called, God called himself the God of Jacob. Moses was portrayed as a murderer and a fugitive from justice, which he was. David was shown to be an adulterer who compounded the crime of adultery with the murder of the woman's husband. Yet David was called a man after God's own heart. The atheist asked what kind of God he must be who could be pleased with people like Moses and David, etc. Remarkably, this tract had hit on something which even God acknowledges. God himself uh, calls himself just and holy, yet for centuries he had been refusing to condemn and instead had actually been justifying men and women such as these. We might say that for these long centuries there had been a blot on God's name. As Paul says, he had indeed been passing over former sins. So is God unjust? And the answer is no. In the death of Christ, God's name and purposes are vindicated. The problem, you see, the problem was that God had always planned to address sin and deal with sinners, but His plan, the solution to the problem of sin, was one that took place in time and space, at a point in history, and as a part of a sequence of events, which in the nature of the case meant waiting. And that waiting, the forbearance, the postponed judgment, was and is something that could be and has been easily and wrongly misinterpreted as divine neglect or injustice or as otherwise reflecting badly on God's person and character in the eyes of some. 
you know, it's a limited analogy, but my mother used to say to me, wait until your father gets home in response to something I had done wrong, which I don't actually recommend as a parenting approach. But that's what she did. And what it meant was, for a while, I had a reprieve. And to the casual, uninformed observer, perhaps, it might have looked like I was getting away with things, and that my mother didn't care, or was you know, overly lenient, or something like that. But that wasn't the case at all. Things were going to get dealt with fully and completely when the right time came, which in that situation was when Dad got home. And it's that kind of thing that Paul's getting at here. God's postponed judgment and dealing with sin left him liable to unfounded criticisms and to wrong conclusions being formed about its purposes and character and person. But the cross vindicated all of that. It cleared all of that up once and for all. So, summarizing the answer to the fourth question, what is this righteousness that God bestows upon the undeserving sinner based upon? And the answer is, the cross of Christ, that's what it's based upon, by which God justified and redeemed His people, and through which His own wrath was propitiated, and His own character, His goodness and justice, vindicated. Right, All of that was going on at the cross. Justification, redemption, propitiation, vindication. Which leads us to the fifth and final question we are asking about the righteousness of God. In addition to asking what it is, and why we need it, and how is it even possible that we might receive it, and what it is based upon, we are also asking, how do we come to possess it? How is it that we come into possession of this righteousness that God supplies? The short response is, by faith. We place our trust, our confidence, our hope, not in something we have done, but fully and completely in something that has already been done by Christ, His life, His death, and resurrection. And we see the role of faith here in verses 22 and 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith." These verses talk about the righteousness of God as something that comes to us through faith and about the propitiating, redeeming work of Christ that is received by faith. And the word through there is really important. As one writer says, it points to the fact that faith is not a merit and thus earning our salvation. It is no more than the means through which the gift is given. And the point that this writer makes about faith not earning salvation is important because it seems that, at least in the minds of some people, their exercising faith in Jesus or their placing one's trust in Jesus is regarded as the efficient cause that gets them over the line between not being saved and being saved and so functions as a kind of work that saves you. But that is not the case at all. That is not how Paul understands the role of faith or what he means by it. For starters, our expressing faith at all is only possible because of God's 
prior regenerating work, making us spiritually alive and capable of being responsive by this sheer uninvited work of His Holy Spirit that invades our heart. But even beyond that, there's a second reason why this faith that we do exercise is not at all a meritorious thing. Lig Duncan explains it this way. Think about it for a minute, he says. Yes, faith is something that we do. It's an act that we do as humans. But, as an act, it is in essence, in its essence, essentially focused not on us and not on our works. It's focused on someone else. Faith is focused on another. In this case, God. Faith doesn't look to what we do. It looks to what God does. Faith doesn't put trust in ourselves. It puts trust in God. Faith doesn't try and find strength from within to stand before God in our own righteousness. Rather, faith renounces our righteousness as filthy rags and looks to the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ.